As you open your Bible to John chapter 8, uh, let me pray as we continue to worship our awesome God together. Father God, we just thank you so much for today. I thank you for the opportunity we have to just <clears throat> magnify your name through these songs that we've sung, through the scriptures that we've read, through giving of our offerings and our tithes. Lord, and even as we hear your word preached, Lord, these are all acts of worship. So Lord, I pray that we would worship you in spirit and truth, that you may be glorified, that you may honored. Lord, we pray for all gospel preaching churches here in London, that you would be magnified, that you would be glorified in and through them for your word to be preached clearly. Lord, we pray that you give the leadership and the pastors of those churches wisdom as they shepherd the flock that you have entrusted to them. Specifically, we think of Compass Community Church, Lord, and Pastor Joey, and we pray that you would use them uh, for your glory, that you, would, that, they, that you would bless them as they seek to be disciples who make disciples of Jesus Christ. And give them wisdom, give the pastors and the elders wisdom as they shepherd their flock there as well. But Lord, as we open up your word together, we pray, I pray that you are glorified, that you're honored. And Lord, we come with all sorts of different types of weeks. But God, I pray that, we, that you would calm our hearts and our minds as we hear what you have to say through your word. Lord, I can't make this turn out well on my own. So God, will you do that by your spirit? Give me the necessary words to preach, to say. Lord, I pray that you would use this sermon for your glory, for the joy of your people, and for the salvation of the lost. And amen. So John, actually I kind of fibbed a little bit, John 7, 53, which is the last verse, right before John 8, is where we're going to be this Sunday. And as you remember, last week, Pastor Matt preached from John 7, and we were introduced to how Jesus is the living water. He is the rivers of living water. And we actually see as the tension began to increase, the, the uh, religious leaders, the Pharisees, sent out the officers of the temple, and they sent them out to go try and arrest Jesus. And we were talking about this in our community group this past week, and we thought it was kind of humorous, uh, because the, the religious leaders go and they send off the, the soldiers with one job. They had one job, and that was to arrest Jesus but they got captivated by his words that he had to say because nobody spoke with that sort of authority. And they come back, they give their report, and the uh, religious leaders call him crazy. Call them crazy. And now we're continuing on in that narrative, in that story of Jesus, uh, continuing to reveal more and more of who he is and what he will do for us. Now, as a precursor, in some of your Bibles, you'll notice that it says in these little brackets, it says the earliest manuscripts do not include 53 to 8, verse 11. And it means that the, this part of the Bible is not part of the oldest testimonies of, that we have. And this does not mean that it's unhistorical. There's nothing in this passage that is unworthy of, of it is, is, does not say any unworthy sound doctrine. It doesn't say anything heretical, it doesn't say anything bad. In fact, it shows us a little bit more of who God is, who Jesus is, who our Savior is. The issue is, is that it does break up the narrative a little bit here. 
And it is in the Word of God, so we will continue to preach through it. So the best way to look at this passage is a story of something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry, but wasn't part of John's original writings. Okay? So if you have your Bibles with you, we're following from uh, 753 all the way forward to the uh, John 8, sorry, verse 30. The Word of the Lord says this. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have something to to charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones and beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And and she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I come from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. And I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21, so he said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I am going, you cannot come? And he said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, and I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sin. So they said to him, well, who are you? And Jesus said to them, I know, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declared to the world that I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as my Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. And this is the word of the Lord. A little bit of a longer passage, but as we're introduced to this first little section of verses 57, or 7, verse 53, all the way to 8, verse 11, we see uh, an, a new character introduced into this plot. This woman is dragged before Jesus. This is a horrific scene. It really is. Uh, here's this woman who's been caught in adultery, and, they're, and the only reason why they're dragging her is not for seeking God's holiness, but purely so that they can discredit Jesus, so that they can bring some sort of charge to him. That's the only reason. You see the maliciousness of their hearts. They will do whatever it takes in order to win over the people including compromising their own laws, as we will see here. But we see Jesus' heart for this woman as he interacts with her. So this woman is dragged before him early in the morning they came to him as he was teaching in the temple, as they caught this woman in adultery. And they come to him in verse 4 and they say, Hey, look, Jesus, this woman was caught in adultery. What are you going to do about it? They think, I got him trapped now. Because if we understand the culture, the context in which this passage is written, we understand that there is only one authority in all of this world at this time that had the authority to kill anyone, and it was the Roman government. The Romans had the only authority to kill someone. So if Jesus came along and said, yes, this woman should be killed, then, well, he's going to be in trouble with the Romans. And if he doesn't say anything, then he's, he's looking, looking as though he's one who compromises the law of Moses. For them, they're like, yeah, win-win for me, lose-lose for Jesus. So Jesus comes and he sits down and he stoops down and he begins to write. And for the record, we have no idea what he wrote, so we're not going to talk about it. But he was writing. If the word of the Lord doesn't say it, then let's just keep moving. But they thought that they could use the law as a way to trap Jesus. And the only reason for the purpose of this is in verse 6, as they say, they said this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. I, I just can't believe the audacity of these people that they are willing to drag this woman across who knows how far to bring, him, bring her towards Jesus. But here Jesus shows so much mercy. See, the purpose of finding this woman was to satisfy their desire to kill Jesus. It wasn't about upholding God's word, but about killing the word of God. And they are past the point of testing Jesus or seeking further proof against him. And like I said, do you see the maliciousness that is going on in these people's hearts? In Romans 1, 29 to 32... The word of the Lord says this about people. Well, let's start in verse 20. It says, uh, verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are all f- full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents 
foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's how God describes the people who do not inherit the kingdom of God. So here are these groups of people that are coming, describing themselves as, I am of Abraham, I am the person of God, but nothing in their life is actually lining up with one who follows Jesus or follows God. But they're so malicious, and you see what the heart that is being shown here. And Jesus begins to address it, and I love how he addresses it. Because he just slays, he sits there on the ground, and he just continues to write as they're like hurling insults completely ignoring him. And then he says probably the wisest words, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. See, Jesus doesn't address the charge at all. But he puts it back on them. Jewish law actually dictated that a person had to be caught in the act of idolatry which means it had to be witnessed. It had to be actually seen that those two people were having sex. That's how it happened. And it had to be two people. There's actually an instance in the Septuagint where a woman was let off and and a man were let off of the charges because the two witnesses disagreed on what the tree where the act apparently happened looked like. This is how serious God takes these things. So here he is, and he says these words, whoever is the first amongst you is the first one to throw the stone. And Jewish law stated that the act had to be witnessed, but how do you witness a private act? And why would you witness it and not stop it? If this was done to create a trap, how are they not guilty by being complacent in this? So Jesus comes and says, whoever is without sin, you throw the stone. Understanding as well that Jewish law required that the persons who actually witnessed the act were, the, were supposed to be the ones who first threw the stone. So they get up, and the oldest ones seem to be the more rational ones. They're the first ones to leave as they begin to realize what is happening. And now they're left with no one. And so Jesus gets up and he looks at the woman and says, hey, is there anybody here who's going to condemn you? And Jesus is not talking about how this woman is without sin. He's talking about the condemnation of a capital act of of killing this woman. There's no one here to condemn you anymore. He's not being complicit. He's not allowing for sin. He's not saying, I'm going to ignore this. What he's addressing is the fact that this woman was about to go through capital punishment, and now he says, they're not here to charge you, neither do I. But he does call this woman to sin no more. It's an amazing account of who Jesus is and what he has done and his heart for people and his heart for holiness And I want you to understand the context here. Jewish law required that these witnesses would actually agree on the actual act. But here these people actually just wanted to get Jesus. Ah, they They would do whatever it took. They probably dreamt about ways in which they could kill Jesus. And all because of his message. 
because he says, and we'll say again, he is the light. As John 8, 12 says, we see that Jesus is the light of the world. And he says in verse 12, and again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. This is a big thing. What is this showing about who Jesus is? What does light do? Are all questions that we need to be thinking about as we look at this passage. In John, the aspect and the theme of light is big, and it comes up over and over and over again. And Jesus calls himself the light of the world. This is who he is. In Psalm 27, verse 1, is a great passage uh, uh, describing what light is and what and what light does, if you've got your Bibles, flip them over to Psalms chapter 27, unless it gets up on the screen, which says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? In Isaiah 9, verse 2, we see this. The people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on whom has light shone. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of the coming of the light into the world. Of salvation and the light of God. Light is a biblical image of salvation. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who comes to save. There's a great song uh, by, a man, uh, by a man named Andrew Peterson. I was listening it to this morning as I was working out, and I was like, I should have listened to this while I was doing sermon prep. But what does light do in the darkness? Light never loses in the dark. Light always overcomes the dark. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the light of the world. Last week we saw that Jesus, as Pastor Matt was preaching, we saw that Jesus is the living water. He is the inexhaustible source of spiritual nourishment. If you want to be nourished, if you feel like your soul is thirsty, you have to go to Jesus. He's the only one that can quench it. But as he is also the genuine light. And what does light do? It shines in the darkness. It distinguishes between the truth and the lies. It gives direction. When you're in a dark place and you just flick on like a little match or a little lighter or just, you know, the phone light because no one has matches anymore. It illuminates everything that is around it and the darkness runs away. Have you ever been on a night trip on a plane? And as you, I, I love it, right? You're on a plane and you're up there on the sky and then all of a sudden you start to descend and hopefully you have a window seat. Or if you're like me, an aisle seat because you need the extra leg room. And you're, you're sitting there, you're looking out the window and it's dark, it's dark everywhere. And you see little street lights and whatnot and then suddenly you see the runway lights and the runway lights give direction and guidance to the plane to land. Imagine if there wasn't any runway lights. Poor pilots trying to guess where the runway is. You're just looking for us. You know that at some point, they, there was enough accidents that they thought, hey, we need to put lights on the runway. 
But here, Jesus is calling himself the light of the world. If we, under, if we want to understand what Jesus does by being light, we really need to understand what darkness is. What was the darkness that Jesus found in this world? What type of darkness did Jesus step into when he was born of the Virgin Mary, when he grew up and while he was walking towards the cross? What type of darkness consisted there? The darkness consisted of a lack of knowledge, ignorance and folly and superstition. Micah 3, 6 talks about how the world is full of ignorance and folly and superstition. You see that all around us all the time. People are willing to believe in almost anything these days as long as it's not God. It was a moral dimension as well of evil and fear. And Proverbs 4 verse 19 talks about that. It is an experiential darkness where there's bondage, misery, and death. This is the type of darkness that Jesus comes into as the light of the world. And it is a judicial type of darkness with judgment and wrath. Zephaniah 1.15 clearly states out that God will judge. And what is true of the dark world is also true of every life apart from the shining light of Jesus Christ. Outside of Jesus... We're all ignorant and folly and full of superstition. We're all uh, evil and full of fear. We're all in bondage. We all experience misery and death. And outside of Jesus, we're all under the judgment and wrath of God. Apart from Jesus, this is the darkness we all experience. And he is the light of the world. But here's the beautiful thing about the gospel. The world wasn't created dark. It was made dark because of sin. Everybody comes along and says to me, like if you're having a conversation with someone, they say, well, how could a loving God allow all of this suffering? That's an easy answer. Genesis 3 kind of gives that one for me. We sinned. We said, God, I can do it better. And like a poison and like a cancer, sin permeated all humanity. And all it brought was darkness. Humanity came under judgment of God because of sin, and God is holy, and sinful humanity was thrown out of the presence of that light. Humanity fell into immediate ignorance when we were cast out of the garden. Think about Cain at the beginning of the book of Genesis who tried to approach God in his ignorance. What was the outcome of that? Murdered his brother. As one commentary put it, the world that God made good and the human race created in glory as his image bearer fell into darkness by sin. The world cannot escape the chains of this dark bondage. So in his great mercy, in his great mercy, God promised to send a savior to free us from our ignorance. Evil, death, and judgment John the Baptist's father, Zechariah the priest, talked about this in Luke 1. Therefore, when Jesus called aloud in the midst of the city of Jerusalem, as, he's, as these people are around him in the temple, as he cries out there and he declares, I am the light of the world, all the temple were the hope that he was the hope of saving light, was, was declared at that moment. He declared himself that, 
Savior who frees us from our sin when he said, I am the light of the world. See, to a world that is full of ignorance, to a world that is ignorant to God, Jesus reveals the truth of heaven. To a world that is suffering, in the midst of evil, Jesus offers a cleansing renewal and peace. To those condemned in judgment for their sin, Jesus shed his own blood for forgiveness. Into a spiritually dark and dying world, he shines the light of eternal life. When Jesus declares he is the light of the world, it's imp- it is huge. And when I reflect upon what God has done for me through his son Jesus Christ, how Jesus stepped down from his throne and that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that he grew up and he died on the cross for my sins, that he is the light of the, na- of the world, when I reflect upon that thing, that brings joy into my life as I'm reminded of the hope that I have in Jesus Christ. My hope is not based on circumstances. My hope is based on the truth of the gospel. That regardless of whatever I go through in life, regardless of whatever may happen, whatever, whatever. They didn't sing my song today. Whatever it may be, my joy is, over, is there and it should be an overflowing aspect as I reflect upon what God has done for me. I was ignorant I was in judgment. I was foolish. I was all of these things. I was miserable. I was facing death. All of these things. But Jesus saved me. Reflect upon that. And let it overflow. I pray for you and for me that when people look at my life and when people look at your life, that they don't see someone who's all about the issues but all about the gospel. There's like a million different things to fight in this world. It seems to be ever-growing list of things to fight and things to complain about. But I want people to look at me and say, wow, he must really love Jesus. I want people to look at us as a church and be like, wow, they really love Jesus. We don't compromise. We're holy as God is holy. We seek to be those things. But I do hope that people look at us and see that we just are in love with our Lord and our Savior. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you get the joy and the privilege of bringing that light of the gospel to a world that is suffering in in the misery of evil, to a world that is condemned in judgment for their sins. We get to bring the lights of Jesus into a spiritually dark and dying world and proclaim, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Are you broken? Let me tell you about how Jesus healed me. Are you miserable? Let me tell you about the joy that Jesus gives me. And what an amazing privilege we have. As he continues on in that one verse, he says, Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And Jesus is the light that frees us from the bondage and slavery of our sins. Which means, if you're in the light, walk like you're in the light. Stop playing in the darkness. 
If you are born of God, you have been set free. One of my favorite verses is in this next little part in, in, at the later end of John 8, where Jesus says, you are free indeed. He frees me from the bondage of sin, which means stop playing in the sin if you're a follower of Christ. You have been set free from sin because you have trusted in Christ. You were slaves, but Christ set you free. And as we walk through the life of in-between, we follow the light because we are no longer in the darkness. He is the light worth following. Jesus relieves us of our ignorance. He has saved us from the wrath of God. So we live in that light. Just like how a plane is landing in the dark on the, rail, on the runway, with all the lights guiding it where to go, Jesus is our light. And we seek to follow that. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means to trust him and live as his disciple. We follow Jesus to the cross, dying there to our sins. This is what Jesus says in Luke 9, 23, when he says, And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Before Jesus, you were a slave to sin. In Christ, he has set you free. Live as a free person. Stop living like you're in bondage. Rest in the grace and, and, grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. See, that word follow in the Greek is, is to accompany someone or take the lead in determining direction or route or movement. The idea is like a, a soldier, a group of soldiers following their captain. The captain says, charge, you follow. And Jesus says, follow. There's a couple of these great quotes that I came by this week, one by William Barclay, and it says this, Always a slave is ready to spring to the master's service and to carry out the tasks the master gives him to do. Another one by William Henderson says this, Hendrickson, about the follower of Jesus, must follow where the light leads. He is not permitted to map out his own course through the desert of this life. That's a great quote. J.C. Ryle says it this way, to follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. Pastor, that seems like a radical commitment to follow Jesus, you may say. Yeah. It is. And too many professing Christians have come to him without the commitment and never actually follow him. But there is no other kind of saving Christianity. To have Jesus as Savior is to follow him as Lord. And when Jesus comes and he says he is the light of the world, and when he says, uh, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life, this is what he's talking about. Look at what Jesus has done for you. Look what he's done for me. Look what he's done for all of us as we can even gather here to worship in this way. Is there not a limitless amount of things to be praising him for? 
Is there not a limited amount of things that we can go and tell other people about? We are called as a church to be disciples who are growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. To be a disciple is to be a Christ learner. And as we learn more about what Christ has done for us, it should push me out to declare who he is to a dark, dark world. Because it's a dark, dark world. Have you driven the streets of London? People need Jesus. I need to be better at it. Verse 15, Jesus doesn't judge according to the sinful standards of the world because he does judge, especially what has clearly been shown in this previous section. But he judges in truth because of where he is from and is aligned to his Father. In verse 16, he begins to root and connect once again to these people who don't seem to listen that Jesus can be a witness to himself because his works are proving where he comes from. Have you seen all that Jesus has done? Have you seen all of the testimonies, how the lame are walking, how the dead are rising, how the blind can see, how he's feeding 5,000, how he's walking on the water? All of those things as John writes later, is so that we may believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It is a visible testimony that God bears to the Savior's authenticity. And then he comes to verse 19, where he says, Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. And you're like, do you understand who he's telling this to? He's telling this to the Pharisees who think that they know Jesus. They know the Lord, sorry. They know God. Technical knowledge isn't saving knowledge. I grew up in Sunday school, and I was the pain in my Sunday school teacher's bum. Because I also went to a Christian school, too. So I was that kid right? The one who thought he knew everything. I had my own little separate projects, my teachers. (laughs) God bless them. (laughs) But you know what? No matter how many verses I memorized, no matter how many passages of the Bible, no matter how well I knew the Word of God, I did not, that did not mean I was saved. To be saved is to submit to Jesus' Lordship of my life and to follow him. It is not about what I know, but about who I know and what I am resting is. That is what the gospel is. That Christ died for my sins and that he rose again. Jesus is the light of the world and whoever is in him will walk in the light of the gospel. That is what gives me joy and that's what should well up within us and pour out into those around us. We have been saved from ignorance, death, and judgment. That should also push us out to declare the joy to other people around us. In verses 8 to 21, sorry, chapter 8 to 21 to 30, we see Jesus explaining once again how not to die. As he says, he, so he tells them again as he talks about his death and his resurrection, you will die in your sins, he says. There's only two places that humanity can go at death. And the only way of salvation is to believe in Jesus. As he says, he's told them so many times, 
The only way for a sinner like you and me to avoid dying in our sin is for us to be born of God, to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, to repent of our sin and walk in the light as he is in the light. We will get into this a little bit later, but we think that the outcome of all that Jesus says is in verse 30, as he says, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. But we'll see just a couple verses down that 33 gives the impression that what we see here is a superficial belief because true believers are those who abide in his word. Just like we in verse 31 says, perseverance distinguishes those who are truly born of God. And the tables have turned. And the question has to be, how do you not die in your sins? And the answer is by believing in Jesus who is the light of the world. So what do we do with all this? Jesus is the light of the world that we bear witness to in this dark world. That is what we're called to do. We're called to go and bear witness of this, but Jesus is the light of the world, and we are like his torchbearers, right? Uh, my family and I uh, watch Survivor. Don't judge us. It's like a big family event. Last, on Friday, we were like, Who, let's watch a movie. We try to do like movie and, you know, pizza or whatever. And my kids are like, let's watch Survivor. I'm like, oh no, let's watch a bunch of people lying to each other. This is great morality. But they all have these torches, right, that can get snuffed out. That they need as they walk back to their, tr- into their, tr- their tribe camp place. Jesus is the light of the world that we bear witness to in this dark world. The light of the world will never lead us wrong. If we follow Jesus, we are following the one who is the I am. He is equal with the Father. He is the one with the Father. He does what pleases the Father. He teaches what the Father taught him. He judges according to the Father's will. This is the one who offers himself as the light of the world, promising to lead those who follow him, to provide them the light of life, We who have been made alive by the word of Jesus, we have been liberated by this. We are no longer slaves to sin. He sustains us and he quenches our thirst by being the living water that the Spirit gives us. And we follow him. To a world that is ignorant of God, Jesus reveals the truth of heaven. To a world suffering the misery of evil, Jesus offers a cleansing, renewal, and and peace. To those condemned by in judgment of their sin, Jesus shed his own blood for you. Into a spiritually dark and dying world, he shines a light of eternal life. Jesus is the light of the world that we bear witness to in a dark world. Let us do that as we continue to praise our God. Father God, I thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the reminder that we see that you are indeed the light of the world, that you are the only way by which we can be with him. So Lord, I pray that for those who may not know you, who may be here, Lord, I pray that you convict us of our sin and our need of a Savior that you are the light of the world. 
Lord, I pray for us who do know Jesus that we would live like we are in the light and that we wouldn't play in the darkness, but that we would also go out declaring to this broken world that you are the light of the world. There is hope. There is hope for the nations. Lord, I just pray that we would worship you. And it's not because of anything that we've done, but only because of what you have done. And we praise you for that. Amen.